Lord, we come into your presence through Jesus. We thank you for that privilege, Lord. And we come to hear your words. We hear your voice. And most importantly, we want to hear your heart, Lord. And Lord, will you prepare us so that as we receive this, let it not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose in us and that your purposes will also be accomplished through us. And so we thank you. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A big welcome back to Kingdom 101. And for those who are listening in, it's great to have you back with us also. Tonight, the title is Missing the Point. And I hope that as we go through tonight's teaching, we ourselves here will not miss the point. We've come to a very interesting point in Matthew after 11 chapters and 80 plus sessions. We see that from chapter 1 all the way through until now, we have noticed the increasing popularity of Jesus. But with the increasing popularity of Jesus comes also the increasing hostility against Jesus from the religious leaders. And as we get into chapter 12, we will notice that this escalates with greater intensity as he moves from Galilee all the way through to Jerusalem and finally ending up on the cross. Let me just give you a quick background and a quick overview so far. Jesus' interaction with the leaders in Matthew. In chapters 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares with a different authority. When he came down, people were just saying, wow, you know, he speaks with a different authority than the scribes. He doesn't just teach about this authority, he demonstrates this authority very, very differently. And by the time we finish chapter 8 in Matthew, a certain scribe, one of the leaders, already wants to follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 3, some of the scribes then take issue with Jesus forgiving the paralytic's sins. And the people look at him and say, this man blasphemes. And so you start to see the first signs of tension from the leaders. Matthew chapter 9, still in 9 to 13, the Pharisees question Jesus about fasting. Chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. And this will come again later on in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus informing team Jesus and sending out the disciples and the apostles, he warns them of persecution by those who are the religious types. And in fact, these are one of the categories of wolves. He says, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. And he refers to these religious people as wolves. Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 to 19, in the, in the teaching entitled, Love or Cry. Do you remember that one? Jesus directs his remarks to the Pharisees who called John a demon and himself a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then we come to Matthew chapter 11, right at the end. And we see Jesus ending up in verse 28 saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we already covered this in the last teaching called Good Yoke. But don't miss this. Look at this last few lines down here. Jesus was openly inviting people, saying, Hello, follow me, learn from me. Don't learn from the other people. 
Now, who are the other people? <laughs> the Pharisees, the religious types, right? Learn from me. Come to me. Don't go to them. Come to me. Uh, take my yoke. Don't take their yoke because their yoke is going to be very heavy. It's going to be very difficult. You've already experienced that. But if you come to me, then I will give you rest. Now, note that word rest because we're going to unpack that quite a lot tonight. And I want you to learn from me what this rest is, what the yoke is about, and it's going to be okay. And so can you see, this is like a direct attack now against the Pharisees. Take my yoke, easy. This, difficult. Now imagine if you're one of the Pharisees listening in. I don't think you're going to be very happy with this kind of a statement. So with this context, it's easier for us then to understand all the way through the increasing hostility. And now we come into chapter 12. And the way Matthew arranges the material, I think he's very deliberate. And he's showing, now that Jesus has made this open invitation, what is going to happen from this point forth. So let's read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 first. We'll cover verses 1 to 8. But let's start with verse 1 and 2. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so here Jesus is saying now, Take my yoke, come to me, learn from me. Immediately, the Pharisees were looking at Jesus and saying, Hi, yo, how can people go to you? Call yourself a teacher. Your own disciples are breaking the law. How can you have any credibility? What kind of authority do you have to be a teacher and to invite people to come to you? And so I believe that the Pharisees were challenging Jesus' authority as a teacher of the law with a purpose to discredit him. But on the other hand, Jesus is demonstrating what it actually means to learn from me and not from the Pharisees. And so you have both this little tussle going on. Were the Pharisees really upholding the law or were they just protecting their own turf? In any case, they totally missed the point. They totally missed Messiah and they totally missed His heart. And with this introduction and the context that is there, we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into this teaching. And since the Sabbath was used in this illustration, we have to learn a little bit about the Sabbath first. If we don't understand what the Sabbath is, then we ourselves will also miss the point. And we won't understand the full context and the full teaching. We have to explore the questions firstly, what is the point of the Sabbath? We miss it, we miss the point. Why? How did the Sabbath become such a big deal? Why did Matthew use this one illustration to show up the Pharisees missing the point? How did they miss the point? Finally, what is the right way to understand and apply the Sabbath specifically in this teaching? Would we miss the point too if we don't understand the point of the Sabbath? So if you're ready, let me give you an overview of the Sabbath. A few words can be used to sort of summarize or describe the Sabbath. The very first one is, of course, rest, the most popular concept. Sabbath means to rest. In the Hebrew, is Shabbat. And that means to cease, to pause, to stop or to rest. The very first mention, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Creation account. On the seventh day, God ended His work 
which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And so this very first mention, God sets the tone. God sets the example. He says, six days I've used to create. I've done all the work that is to be done. I've seen everything is good, very good in fact. And on the seventh day, he rested. And so there's already in the creation order that after six days, the seventh day is to be a day of rest. Now if you extend it a little bit more later in Numbers chapter 16, verse 22 to 30, you will see the principle of the Sabbath in the gathering of the manna. If you know this account well, Israel had already been saved out of the land of Egypt. And when they got into the wilderness, God says, I will provide for you. Every day I will give you manna. For six days there will be manna. You go out there, you're going to collect this. But on the seventh day, there will be no manna. So on the sixth manna, you just collect all you need and no more, no less. And it's going to be enough, right, for you. And seventh day, there's no manna, but it's going to be fine. Believe me, trust me, and I will provide for you, right? And so for 40 years, that's what God did for them. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, don't miss this one small little point here. This was even before the giving of the law. Can you see? The principle of the Sabbath was already there. Because God had already instituted it in the creation order. He's saying, now this is how it's going to be. And later on, He formalizes it in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is really a summary statement of all that God intends for His people. You will see this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Set it apart. This is for me, God is saying. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, so on and so forth. Even animals need to rest, okay? And the reason is given in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. When you look at these passages which we have just explored, we begin to see that God blessed it. And whenever God blesses something, it is seen to be like a gift that's given to mankind. When God blesses something, it's like saying, I'm giving this over to you. I'm blessing this for your good. But when you see the word sanctified, to make holy or to set apart, that is a claim by God. Now, interesting, right? He blesses the Sabbath. In other words, He gives it to man. And then he says, he sanctifies it. He claims it back. It's a very interesting concept down here. The Sabbath is given over to men for their good, but it's really finally so that the purposes of God can be fulfilled. And so it's both God giving and God taking it, but it's for the good of men, but for the purposes of God. So rest is important as a concept in the Sabbath because men will require that Sabbath. We will need that rest so that we can then fulfill the purposes of God. The second concept of Sabbath is redemption. Redemption. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, and you know Exodus is the time after God had already saved Israel out of Egypt. 
He says, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, what sign is this? Obviously, the sign must point to something. When you see the word sign, it points to a covenant, right? It has to be an agreement. And a sign is to remember the covenant so that we will not forget it. Every time we miss the sign, we forget the covenant and we forget what is important. What is this covenant actually? It's a covenant of God saying, I've redeemed you, now you're mine. I'm your God, you're my people, we have an agreement. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, the Ten Commandments was first given in Exodus and then later repeated in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is like the second time that the law is mentioned for the good of the people because time had already gone by. A new generation needed to be reminded again of all the commandments. One little clause is added after this command to say, keep the Sabbath holy. And you find that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. And it says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, for this reason, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, don't miss this point. Many times when we talk about the Sabbath, we only look at the word rest. We forget the point of redemption. See, God is saying, I want you to remember this sign. Whenever you keep that Sabbath, whenever you set it apart for me, it is to help you remember this agreement that you have with me because I was the one who saved you from a no-day, no-night treatment. I saved you from a point of slavery. I saved you from a point where you worked until you had no rest. You had no recourse at all and you almost died from that. And you, were, you cried out to me and I saved you. And so although the Passover as a meal would remind them of the deliverance, Sabbath will remind them of the rest that comes out of this deliverance. And it's about redemption. Remember your redemption. And the point for Israel and the people of God, and even for us today, is to remember, hello, I redeemed you from a really terrible master. There's no point changing masters and jobs and then find yourself still being enslaved. Do you understand this point? You know how many of you have worked in a, in a job that is really very, very difficult? Uh, no day, no night, very frustrating, and work until like want to die. And then you say, I want to change job. Oh, thank God, God gives me a new job. And then you go to a new job, exactly the same. There's no redemption, amen, right? And so don't change masters and find yourself being enslaved again. And this is what God is saying to His people. You need the Sabbath. I, I took you out so that you can rest. It's for your good. And it's about redemption. And it's also not just for yourself only, because it says there, you need to rest, your male servant needs to rest, your female servant needs to rest, your animal needs to rest, everyone else needs to rest. In other words, the redemption is not just only applied to you, it's also saying to you, you don't be a slave, but don't be a terrible master also. Don't do to others what you don't want to be done to yourself. Don't enslave others. And the whole Sabbath picture is also a humanitarian concern so that everyone can look after each other and not be enslaved. And this is not just humanitarian, but also for animals and for everything else. 
So the first concept of Sabbath is what? Rest. Second is redemption. Now the third one, again not to a parent, because it's a little bit more distance from what we are normally used to, is what we call the Sabbath years. God instituted years of Sabbath. That means at, at certain points, you are supposed to take a rest for an entire year. Wow, how many of you would be so happy if PAP declares tomorrow we are going to have a national holiday one whole year? You're going to say praise the Lord, right? And then after you panic, my salary how? Is it paid leave or is it unpaid leave? So seventh year Sabbath, you find it in Leviticus chapter 25 verses 1 to 7 that every seven years you rest. And the whole nation takes a rest. Why? Because the land needs to rest. Now, interesting, right? God says people rest. Animals rest. Now, the land, because it was largely agricultural, rest one year. And you just let it grow wild. Don't cultivate it. Don't tend to it. And the reason is so that those who are poor, the animals, can go to the land and just pluck and take and eat. It's okay because no one else is going to take it anyway. God's saying, don't worry, because on the sixth year, you're going to have enough harvest to tie you through. Trust me. Believe me. I'm going to do this for you. But for the others, for the poor who don't have no land, they don't have a means of a livelihood, let them eat. Let them collect as much as they want. Don't worry about that. In the seventh year, debts are also cancelled. And slaves go free. And that's why you get this idea of a bond servant after a slave is set free and a slave says, hey, I love this master, he's so good, I'm going to come back. He becomes a bond servant. He voluntarily gives himself over for life. Then you continue, 7, 14, 21, all the way to 49. Then on the 50th year, this is the year of Jubilee. One more time, national holiday. The land rests, debts are cancelled, Slaves set free totally again. Everyone now gets to return home because the property is returned to the original owners. When they went into the land, Joshua, together under the direction of the Lord, allotted land for the different tribes. But you see, some of them don't handle it well. They sell off the land or they have to mortgage the land or you give the land as a surety. They lose land. And in the 50th year, the property is returned to original owners. How would you like that? Everyone has a chance to start over. And that's why they call the year of Jubilee a reset button. It's a release. Everyone gets to start back from square one. Now, if you are poor, you'll say hallelujah. If you're rich, I don't know how, how you'll think. You know, it's like, huh? I worked so hard and you may have got to release everything. But you see, the kingdom of God is to look after everyone so that everyone can have a chance again. And if you are hardworking, it's a matter of time before you will again be rich in that sense, right? But if you are poor and you are hardworking, you change your ways, everybody will have a chance to reach a certain level. Now, if you think the seventh year and the fiftieth year is uh, difficult, then God says, okay, I'm going to give you a third-year tithe. No, I'm going to ask for a third-year tithe. I don't give you the tithe. I give you the law. I'm going to ask for a third year. Every three years, you will bring the tithe, everyone, so that we can distribute this. And this is beyond just your normal tithe. Huh? It's everything you bring in on the third year. So 3, 6, 9, 12, 
I believe these are just interim measures so that the people learn how to release, how to let go, how to give. The more you hold, wait until 50th year, you, you will not give anymore. So the principle here is learn how to give a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Be regular, be consistent. So you learn how to be a giver. Don't wait until 50 years and you say, I want to give then. It's going to be very, very difficult. Let me show you how it's going to look if you count from year one to year 50. Can you see this little chart? And I've adapted this from the Jubilee Gospel, the book by Kim Tan. Dr. Kim Tan has done a wonderful study and a presentation of Jubilee Gospel. So if you look at year one, two, three, third year, you bring in the tithe. When you come to sixth year, you bring the tithe. Seventh year, national holiday. Now, in the right mind, if it's a national holiday and you're not going to have any more cultivation of the land, you're going to, you want to keep as much as you can, right? But the sixth year, you're giving out everything already. You notice that? This blows your mind. You wait one more year before you can sow anything. Ninth year, you give tithe again. And then you go on and, and sometimes there's a double whammy, right? There's a 21st year. It happens both at the third year and the seventh year. happens on the 21st year. You continue all the way. And the biggest thing is when it comes to year number 48, the third year tithe you give. 49, seventh year, we take a break, a Sabbath. 50th year, you take a Sabbath. Three years in a row. If you don't trust God, I don't know who you trust. Everything gets reset. You start again. And if you look at this, you, if you wait for the 50th year, you're not going to do it. You wait for the 7th year already, it's difficult enough. And that's why I really believe that third year tithe is like a practice kind of thing to, to keep giving and keep releasing. And it starts not only the third year, it starts with the weekly Sabbath, individually, personally, so that you're able to work to it corporately. And so serious was the keeping of the weekly Sabbath that a violation of the Sabbath carried a capital punishment. Exodus 35 verse 2, Works shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Does it sound too harsh to you? Crazy, right? I say, huh? You mean just do work only is a capital punishment? But actually, when you think of how we are working ourselves to death, uh, actually, it's not much different. Uh. Then we understand the heart of what God is trying to prevent. Because if you keep working, you don't stop, you die anyway. Right? You have no life in the first place. God wants us to have the abundance of life, the balanced life, as what we call it today, the fullness of life, the fulfillment of life, which is not just work, work, and all work all the time. And so if you can't even keep the Sabbath, how are you going to do it for the third year, and then the seventh year, and then for the 50th year. And that's why for Israel, Sabbath became abused. I mean, they'll keep it, but they didn't really keep it. It was not really focusing on God. It was not worshipping God. It was not a day set apart to remember redemption. But what they did was they will indulge in their own pleasures and do whatever they wanted to do. You see this in Isaiah 58. The prophet comes one day and he goes, look, when you keep the Sabbath, it was not for God. You take a day off, yeah, you're supposed to rest, I know, but it was not directed unto the Lord. And instead of delighting in and appreciating the Sabbath, the tradesmen, the people who were, who were working, a businessmen in our days, uh, couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over because the moment the Sabbath cannot work right, so cannot trade on. All the stocks, all the markets are closed. 
I like, I, uh, I missed the opportunity. You know what? If someone is passing through Israel, I could have made a real big cut from this one. And so they hated the Sabbath because they couldn't do business. So can you see? They missed the principle of the Sabbath. And so after a while, they found ways around it or something like that. And that's why after a long while, Israel couldn't keep the Sabbath properly or they kept it, but it, it was just not with the right principle. They were missing the point. And when it came to the seventh year, and in the 50th year, they couldn't keep this entire national holidays. And so when you don't keep God's laws, it, it comes back against you. Have you realized that? And so when you look at the exile, the 70 years of exile, I call it a forced Sabbath. 70 years. When the chronicler recorded this, this is what he wrote in chapter 36 and verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. 70 years they were in exile. And if you calculate backwards, you will find that it is 490 years of not keeping the seventh year Sabbath. 490, right? Divide by seven years is 70 years. They miss 70 cycles. And God says, the land needs to rest. Of course, if we look at the exile of Israel into Babylon and the other nations, we'll say, oh, they sinned. We never related to the Sabbath, correct? But can you see? It's so fundamental. God's saying, look, you need to rest. And because you are looking after yourself, you're greedy, you're trading, you're doing all this, you run after idols and all, you, it's because you have forgotten me. You have not kept the Sabbath holy. You have not kept me as the centerpiece of Israel. So after 70 years, they go back to the land. They learned the lesson, but they still missed the point. The returning remnant went back into the land and they realized, okay, God is serious. His laws cannot be broken. And because we didn't keep His word, we were messing around with His commandments. We thought that He's gracious and loving, His loving kindness, His merciful, or His slow to anger and so on. We better learn our lesson. So they start to keep the Sabbath really strictly. And it is after this whole episode that the Pharisees then came into the picture and then they say, okay, let's not break the Sabbath. One commandment. But what does it mean to break it? What do you mean by cannot do work? So better be careful. Lah. Let me give you 39 prohibitions so that you will not break the Sabbath. You will never come to a point where you accidentally break it. Okay, and this is what it means by the Pharisees doing fencing. They don't want you to break this law, so they put a fence around it. Not enough. They put another fence around it. Not enough. They put a bigger fence around it. So you're so far from the law that you don't have any opportunity to break it. And to them, they're doing you a favor. So 39 prohibitions in the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah is the oral tradition of the Pharisees and they regard this as equal to law. Actually, for them, it might be even higher than the law. That's why Jesus said, because you try to keep your traditions, you have made the Word of God to no effect. They kept the traditions more than the Word of God. These are the prohibitions. You cannot sow, you cannot plow, you cannot reap, you cannot bind sheaves, you cannot thresh, you cannot do winnowing, cannot select the grains, you can't grind it, you can't sift it, you cannot knead it, and you cannot bake it. Everything to do with bread. 11 items. If you are found doing any one of these things, you are working on the Sabbath. So can you understand? The disciples pluck grain, 
harvesting. That's called reaping, you see? And that's why they technically, to them, they broke the law. About garments, making garments. Shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing stitches, tearing. I don't know how they tie their sandals. <laughs> making leather, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scrapping height, marking heights, cutting height to shape, writing two or more letters on the height, I think, erasing two or more letters. Building a structure, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, putting the finishing touch on an object, transporting an object between a private domain and a public domain, or meaning to say you can't transport something or someone for more than a certain distance. So 39 things. And although it's supposed to be helpful, it gave other problems. There are different interpretations what these mean. And even the Pharisees themselves, the leaders, cannot understand, and some agree and some disagree, and so they're fighting amongst each other. And why only these traits and not other traits? How about fishing? So can I go and relax on the Sabbath and sit down there and fish? Cannot. How about carpentry, you know? So it just goes on and it becomes very, very cumbersome. Some permitted activities, of course, you can, you can spend Shabbat together with one's family. You can go to the temple, the synagogue for prayers, uh, visiting family and friends, but only within one kilometer. Beyond that, you, someone cannot even carry you. Your carrier will be working, right? Hosting guests, oh, that's fine because it's hospitality. You can sing songs at the Shabbat, you can read, you can study the Torah because it's all about turning your attention to the Lord. Can you see how they learned a lesson about the Sabbath, but they missed the point? Because the Sabbath is really about rest, redemption, and resetting and giving people an opportunity again to start over, but it became a whole bunch of rules. It became all about what you cannot do and what you can do with all restrictions. And they just promoted a new brand of religiosity to say, if you do this, then you're obedient and you're really good. You know? But if you don't do this correctly, then we will be out there to come to catch you. So this background of Sabbath is important for us to understand the text. If not, when we approach the text, we may not get the full picture of what it is and then how to apply it to ourselves. So thank you for journeying with me and for your patience. We are now ready to return to Matthew. <laughs> now, do you know why we take so long to go through Matthew? But I hope it's helpful for you. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So we have already read two verses. We know that Jesus, together with the disciples, they took a walk through the grain fields and the disciples were hungry. So they thought, okay, fine, I'll pluck a few grains and, and we'll eat it. And when the Pharisees saw it, now you understand, huh? Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They were plucking grains and that means they were reaping or they were harvesting and that means they violated the Sabbath. Now, I, every time I read this, I'm still wondering, where were the Pharisees? Were they tailing Jesus and the disciples? Did they have CCTVs in those days? What? Were they carrying an app so that they can see by GPS where they were walking and see whether they plug green or not? What is this? Some, some, some big brother surveillance systems in those days or what? Right? But it just shows you that if they were really out to pull Jesus down, they would do anything and everything. And they went there. 
And even for the disciples and Jesus, I suppose walking too far through the grain fields might have constituted a violating the Sabbath. But the verse says the disciples were hungry. See, but the Pharisees were not concerned. They, I don't care whether you're hungry. I, I don't care whether you're tired. I don't care whether you're hurting. I don't care whether you have a great need or not. To them, rules and regulations come first. We've got to follow the law. We've got to follow the steps. So don't break this. We call it the red tape. Anyone working in the civil service will understand this, right? It's like, oh, so much red tape. Why must we go through 20 steps when we can do it in two? The disciples were hungry, but the Pharisees were not concerned about that. All they were concerned was, are you breaking the law? And and to them, it's like, I'm helping you, okay? I'm helping you be a good Jew. Or for us, I'm helping you to be a good Christian. Now, Jesus responded this way. He said to them, hello, have you not read? Okay, hello is my word, huh? (laughs) Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Now, I love the way Jesus answers. You want to go by scripture? Excuse me, you read your scripture or not? Do you know what scripture is saying? Let's look at David. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Now, my disciples are hungry. David is hungry. Let's compare. He and those who were with him. Now, I and my disciples hungry. David and his men hungry. Same group. Now, interesting, huh? How Jesus is making even an illusion, David, and one who is also greater than David. It's a beautiful way that he answered the, the, the Pharisees. How David entered the house of God, tabernacle, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, if you want a reference for this story and this account in the Bible in the Old Testament, you can find it in 1 Samuel Chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. The account would record that David and his team, they were moving from place to place. They were hungry, and they approached the priest and they said, give us something to eat. We are famished. Maybe they were all ready to collapse. And all they had was just the 12 loaves of showbread, and that's in in the holy place. It's only reserved for the priests who were ministering in the tabernacle. You want the reference? Exodus chapter 25, verse 30. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. Stated in the law. Everything is put there very, very clear. It's not lawful for them even to eat this bread. Now, credit to the priests. They could have refused. And they would have been very justified to say, cannot, huh? The law say cannot, you know? Right? Because if I give to you, then I break the law. Then I become unholy. Then I cannot minister in this place. But credit to the priest. They took it and said, okay, fine. There's a need. These guys may die. These guys may faint. They have, to, they have to move on another journey and we need to give this to them. So do I meet a need or do I keep a law? And so mercy was shown in a time of need. Hunger as in the case of the disciples. So Jesus draws from Scripture and says, look, there's a precedent down here and there's an example here. David, of all people, would know that it is unlawful to be doing that. But as he asks for this, he goes beyond the letter of the law and he appeals to the spirit of the law. And as a man after God's own heart, he knows what the law is all about. And then he goes on, Or have you not read in the law? And this is Jesus in the typical, I suppose in the casual tone, I would say, Hey, you really know the law or not? I mean, you're trying to tell me my disciples and I, we have broken the law. Number one, do you know your scriptures? Number two, do you really know the law? Have you not read in the law? Excuse me. 
that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. Now, you need to know what verse this is from. Huh? Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 to 10. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year, without blemish, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Meaning to say, the priests will need to administer all this. They need to offer all this on the Sabbath. But hello, I thought Sabbath cannot work. But there's a law for them to work on the Sabbath. And so for the priests to keep the law, they had to, in inverted commas, break the law. And as they broke the law, in inverted commas, they fulfilled the law. Does it blow your mind? Okay, it take a while for you to sink in, right? So God says, no work on Sabbath, but work. And as you're doing one, you're fulfilling another. Because God's intention for Sabbath is not that you just seize from everything and just be robots and you just switch off the engine. That's not His point. If you only follow the letter of the law, you miss the point of the law. You miss the spirit of the law. What is the Sabbath all about? It's about resting. It's about turning back to the Lord. It's about reset. It's not about rules, restrictions, and religiosity. And so Jesus appealed to scriptures. Jesus appealed to the law. And he said, okay, fine. Since we're talking about temple, I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Pharisees, you are the leaders. You guys are the priests. You represent the temple. And if you represent the temple and the priests are allowed to violate the law, to fulfill the law, how much more the one who is greater than the temple? And there's only one person greater than the temple, and that's God. And Jesus was making a huge statement down here. In this place, there's one greater than the temple. And there's a messianic claim again. I am in the place of God. I'm the one who is greater than the temple, greater than David, greater than anything and everyone, because I am God. And in that one statement, he's really saying to these people, you want to interpret the law? Excuse me, I'm the one who gave the law. I know the spirit of the law. I know what works and what does not work. If you know who you're talking to, then you will learn well what is the spirit of the law. That's why learn from me. I'm trying to teach you the right way. And so he also says, if I'm God, then God is the creator. Then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's what it means. That I'm the one who also created the Sabbath. I didn't just give you the temple system. I put everything in place in the first place. And the principle of Sabbath was there from the beginning. So guess who knows how to interpret the Sabbath? Hello, I'm standing here. In this place now, there's one greater than everyone and everything. If you want to learn about the Sabbath, I'll tell you what the Sabbath is about. It's about rest. It's about redemption. It's about reset. And all of these, perhaps not in those clear words he said, but all of these, Jesus would tell them later on, are fulfilled in me. If you know who I am, you'll find rest. If you know and come through me, there will be redemption. Redemption. 
And if you understand who I really am, there will always be a second chance, a reset to get things right again. That's the spirit of the Sabbath. And as he states that claim and makes a very, very bold statement, in between he says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. If you have been journeying through Matthew with us, this would be familiar to you. This is not the first time Jesus used this one Old Testament quote. It's the second time. The first time he said it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. And he actually told the Pharisees there, why don't you go and learn? <laughs> go back to Bible study and study again. Lah. Go back to Bible school and learn what it means when I say I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here he says it one more time. He says, if you, or if you had known what this means, in other words, you didn't go and study. I told you go and study. And you still come again to give me the same issues one more time. If you had known what, if you understand what this means, then you, you don't go around condemning people when actually they're not guilty at all. See, in the time of Hosea, same thing, Israel had become tradition-based and full of rituals, and these have already become blockages to true spirituality. They were harsh, they were judgmental, they perfected the forms and the functions, but they missed the kingdom of God. And God had to speak through Hosea and to bring this indictment against the people of Israel. So when Jesus used this one statement against the Pharisees, it was a very, very strong statement. He's really saying, don't be hypocrites. Don't be hypocrites. Don't just do these things and miss the real issue of what the law is all about. And I've already taught this in that in lesson, go and learn, that this is a Jewish phrase. It's not that sacrifices are bad. It's just saying that as you do these things, don't miss the more important things. I didn't ask you to stop the sacrifice. But in doing the sacrifices, but you miss the heart of the matter, the heartbeat of God, love, mercy, loving kindness, then the sacrifices are useless. So if we apply this to the, our understanding of Sabbath, yep, sure, keeping the Sabbath, important. But remember again, the Sabbath is about rest, about redemption, about reset. It's not about rules, regulations, and religiosity. So if you keep the Sabbath, but miss the Sabbath, then you've missed everything, you've missed the point. The Sabbath was given to be a blessing to men, not to be a burden for men. Sacrifice is good. Take time out. Come and worship. If it only remains as that, then you have missed the point. Even worse, the Sabbath which is meant to be a blessing shouldn't become a barrier to that blessing it's meant to be. And when you start to make rules and make people do things and jump through hoops, it blocks people from the blessing that God wants to give to them. And so Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, go and learn. Go back and learn. Go and memorize Bible study one more time. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, once again, can you stop missing the point? Face palm. Can you stop missing the point? And as you will see later on in the next section, in verses 9 to 14, which we'll cover in the next teaching, the Pharisees still did not get it. Or they did not want to get it. They refused to see the point. And they will proceed to challenge Jesus in the synagogue. 
or in our context, we'll say, in church. What a battleground. So don't miss the point. In our closing section here, let's ask ourselves, what is the New Testament application for us? What does Sabbath mean to us and for us? Because we don't want to miss the point. Amen? Huh? We don't want Sabbath to just mean you've got to go to church, huh? You don't go to church, bad boy. What's the Christian's Sabbath? Let's answer this question. I think it's a good one, right? If we understand that rest, redemption, and reset are all fulfilled and found in Christ, then we need to know who we are in Christ and what we have in Him. So when you believe in Jesus, you enter into the rest that He has promised. Now, what is this rest? It means that you have ceased from your own anxious toils and your spiritual works to try to get to God. You're rested. You approach the throne of grace with boldness. You read Hebrews chapter 4 that talks about entering the rest of God. It ends with this. We have a great high priest who's gone before us. He's opened this way now. So we enter into this rest. We don't have to work to get to God. It's not how frequent you go to church or how many times you attend cell group, good as these things may be. These are not the dead works that we want to have. The writer of Hebrews, let's repent, let's move from dead works. What we want are good works that flows out of all these things. Redemption is found in Christ. We celebrate our redemption from the slavery of sin. And we are set apart, we are sanctified now for a new master's use. So the question is, are you living out this Sabbath? Are you living this redeemed life? And if taking a pause on a Sunday or any other day is to, helps you remember that, to know that your master is not your boss. Your master is Jesus. Your master is not your employer that you'll get so scared. If I, if I don't do what he or she tells me to do, then I don't have my salary credit into my bank account. If you run that way, then you are enslaved all over again. Or if you begin to work until you, you have no more rest, then, then you're enslaved to work, which God is saying, it's not good for you. Everything is already in Christ. We work from that position of Christ, and we want to work from that posture of rest. And I grant you, it's not always easy to remember that. That's why the Sabbath becomes a discipline for us. Because we want to put God first. That's our priority and that's our focus. If it's a reset, then as we have been released, we also want to release one another in the community. Amen? When we come for a Sabbath or we come to rest or we come into a community of people who are celebrating Sabbath, we're releasing one another. Don't hold grudges. Don't hold hurts. You know, don't, don't put things, don't put burdens on anyone else. We are a community in Christ. And in Christ, all of us will always have that reset. Let's start over. Let's start over. Let's give each other always that second and third chance. Because there's rest, there's redemption, and there's reset. That's what the Christian Sabbath is. Sanctified lives. When do we keep this Sabbath? Now, if you are in Christ and everything is fulfilled in Him, then every day is Sabbath for us. We live that Sabbath life, if you understand you don't wait for one day a week to remember this. At the bare minimum, one day a week is good. But really, it should be an everyday thing. We are not required to keep a Jewish Sabbath anymore, which is sundown Friday to a sundown Saturday. 
If the Jews want to keep it or Messianic Jews want to keep it, fine. Nothing wrong with that. You and I are free to rest and to worship any day. In fact, we are free to rest and worship every day. And so the principles of Sabbath, we are to practice it and live it out every day. Everything is done unto the Lord. Everything is done out of a redeemed mind and a redeemed life. So the Christian Sabbath, the practical outworking, which is the how, we are rested. And so if you are flurried, you are anxious, you are kanjong spider, huh? you are then you have taken yourself out of the rest. Are you following? And it's a fine line between concern for something and worry until you have no sleep and you have bad stress. I know we all struggle with that because in the flesh we are prone to act that way. And so we must be reminded and we need to know how to live out that Sabbath principle. We live out redeemed lives. We are no longer enslaved. And the principle of Sabbath is really premised upon these two words, faith and obedience. Why are we stressed? Because we don't trust God. Why do we worry? Because we don't believe He can come through for us. We keep thinking that we have to do everything and then God will somehow uh, bless that later on. No, we believe, we obey. And sometimes to obey is to do nothing. Right? Many times we say obey means to do something, right? But maybe for you or for me, to obey means just to do nothing. Last I tried to learn, to do nothing is very difficult. So practically, personally for yourself, learn to schedule times of rest. It can be daily, it can be a weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever. But learn how to take time out. We are too harried and too rushed. And technology, supposed to help us, does not help us. makes it worse. It's very hard to even put down that phone or that computer. Corporately, it's helpful to set aside time. And that's why we go for Sunday services. We come for celebrations. We, when we gather together, it's to help pull away so that we can all celebrate corporately together and remind each other what is important. Second question, are we being obedient or are we being legalistic? Right? Because we want to keep the Sabbath. We really want to do that. But when are we obedient and when are we legalistic? If you recognize the place and the purpose of Sabbath and the principle of Sabbath, and you keep it diligently as an expression of faith and of obedience, there's nothing wrong with that. Sabbath was created for man because it serves a purpose in each of our lives. It's not the other way around. Man is not here to serve the Sabbath. Don't get it upside down. Huh? The Sabbath is given to us for a beautiful purpose. But when you are locked into a Sabbath of I can or cannot, then you begin to serve the Sabbath. That's a problem. So if you are doing it out of an expression of faith, of freedom, you're enjoying it, then that's okay. Keep the Sabbath in that spirit. Legalistic is like that, where keeping the Sabbath is more important than what should result from keeping the Sabbath. Did you hear that? Your sole concern is just to keep the Sabbath. But what comes out from keeping on the Sabbath? Remember, it should be rest, there should be redemption, there should be release, there should be humanitarian concern, there should be helping other people. But if you go to church every week, I keep the Sabbath, I'm so regular, I'm so good. But you touch no lives. When you start to pride yourself in, your keeping is more important than your living. Then you start to realize, I'm being legalistic. 
you take pride in what you're doing and you, after that, become judgmental over other people. And so don't miss the point. Got to be very careful. Since we're talking about Sabbath, I always use church as an example, right? But don't be offended because it's very common. We can go to church, serve in the church because that's a right Christian thing to do. And do you know there are so many Christians who are all burnt out, tired, legalism has come in, burden, and they don't enjoy doing all these things. But they dare not stop because they are told, if you are a good Christian, this is what you should be doing. So have we missed the point? Possible. And the scary thing is this, when we're serving in this way, we think we're serving God. But we don't realize sometimes we may be serving the system and the institution and we are missing serving God. No one's going to tell you that. The system is there to serve the people. The people is not there to upkeep a system. So when we get into church maintenance mode, after a while it becomes really dreary. And that's why I'm saying to people, learn how to be awakened. Get aligned with what the king and the kingdom is all about. Once you know your assignment, you move very differently. You serve with a different attitude and a different perspective. Thirdly, are you, are you keeping the letter of the law and missing the spirit of the law? Let me give you a litmus test question. Ask yourself, are you usually more judgmental than you are merciful? Do you consider yourself more righteous than others because you are able to keep the law and they can't? Those are the questions you must ask. Now, don't get me wrong. Huh? There's nothing wrong with having convictions. There's nothing wrong with being obedient. But if it's always about how right you are and how wrong others are, then it becomes very unhealthy. There's a time that you should stand on your convictions. I'm not asking you to compromise on anything. But there's also a time, and there's always a time and a place to love and help others who are struggling. And you have to discern which one is needful when. Are you judgmental or are you merciful? Judgmental people will think this way. Why I cannot love or help you, supported by God's word. But merciful people will react this way. How can I love or help you, guided by God's word? Both ways, God's word is there, right? But can you see the focus? It's very different. One will justify, I can't help you, lah. the law says cannot. I really want to, no, but cannot. But a merciful person, a loving person, someone who is kind, will say, I, I really want to help you, but I'm guided by the word of God. How can I do this to the best of my ability? So there's no compromise. Jesus was not advocating breaking or compromising the law because that would have another word. It's called lawlessness. Truth and doctrines are non-negotiables. That one we must stand on. And Jesus never compromised on those issues. But things like worship styles, which day you want to worship, what food you want to eat, some says kosher, some says no need to be kosher. It's all right. We don't fight about those things. And I grant you that some boundaries are not quite as easily discerned. Therefore, the need for clear direction and guidance from leaders without missing the point and the heart of God. We need guidance and directions from leaders. And I tell you more and more so in our society today. Because everything is like thrown to the wind now. Everything also can. But at the end of the day, Really, our part is to invite people to come into the rest, the redemption, and the reset of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. We're not here to give them more rules that restrict them, 
we're not here to raise more religious people. I think we have enough. Lah. Don't want. I don't want myself to be like that. I don't want you to be like that. And so let's close. This lesson may have been focused on the Sabbath because Matthew used this one example to tie from Matthew 11 to 12 to illustrate the increasing hostility and the, the rejection of Jesus, the challenge of Jesus. But it applies to every aspect of what we understand sacrifice to be at the law. And Jesus openly addressed and revealed the Pharisees' legalistic nature. How about you? Where do you stand on this? Have you missed the point too? And I know we have good intentions, right? Sometimes in trying to be obedient to the law, have we swung to the other end and, and become legalistic instead? And we must always check our hearts because it's so easy to do that. And if serving Jesus and being a Christian has become burdensome and tiring, it's time to check your alignment. It's time to check whether you have missed the point yourself. And the question to ask is, who are you learning from? Jesus is saying, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. And in my language today, I say, follow the Christ, not the crowd. And the crowd, I don't mean the world crowd, no. I mean the church crowd. Follow the Christ, not the church crowd. Enjoy the gift of Sabbath, the rested and redeemed life in Christ. Appreciate the resets that are provided for along the way. And so dear friends, let's get the point. And let's help others get the point too. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the yoke of Jesus is easy, it is light, it is not burdensome, O oh Lord. And it does not mean that we have permission to break rules and overturn the law because the law is good and you have given us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what the Spirit of the law is. But Lord, we confess, sometimes it's just so, it's so much easier just to follow step one, step two, step three rules and regulations. Lord, help us hear our King and our Lord Jesus once more. Lord, help us to be aligned and be led by the Holy Spirit so that truly we can be vessels and channels of blessing so that others will know Jesus and to know the kingdom also. Help us, Lord, if some of us are struggling with this rest idea of this idea of Sabbath. If we've gone into religiosity or legalism, forgive us. Set us free, Lord, once again, so that we can serve you and to love you in the freedom that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.